listening to Thank You Five, a podcast devoted to Omaha's vibrant performing arts scene. My name is Dana Schweiger, and I've worked in Omaha theater for over 25 years. I'm sitting down with directors, performers, musicians, technicians, and designers to discuss their artistic talent, their passion, and why they continue to call Omaha home. A multifaceted artist, Roxanne Walk has performed, designed, and directed for many Omaha stages over the past 49 years, including work with Bellevue Little Theater, Broad Street Productions, Chanticleer Theater, Dundee Dinner Theater, New York International Fringe Festival, Omaha Symphony, Omaha Workshop Theater, Opera Omaha, Quincy Productions, Shelterbelt Theater, and Snap Productions. Recent directing credits include Return to Niobrara by Mary Catherine Nagel at the Rose Theater and Fun Home at the Omaha Community Playhouse, where she will also direct Bright Star in spring of 2020. In April of 2018, she directed a workshop staged reading of Return to Niobrara at the Kennedy Center for New Voices, New Visions. A Theater Arts Guild Life member and past president, she has received numerous TAG Award nominations and won several, including Special Event Production, Director of a Musical, Director of Comedy or Drama, New Script, and Supporting Actress of a Musical. Roxanne is a member of the International Center for Women Playwrights. She was honored with the Master Teacher Alumni Award from Midland Lutheran College for her work in theater and was the recipient of the Bob Roberts Tag Board Recognition Award and Norman Louise Filbert Tag Lifetime Achievement Award. She currently serves as the Executive Director for the Shelterbelt Theater, Omaha's home for new plays. She hopes to ignite interest in not just seeing new plays, but supporting the page-to-stage process. Roxanne Walk, welcome to the Green Room. Thanks, Dana. As I like to do with all of my guests, We'll start at the beginning. Where are you from originally? I'm from Omaha. You are from Omaha. What part of town did you grow up in? Sort of. Well, it used to be. It used to be called Midtown, <laughs> um, but I, I went to Westside, so District 66. Okay. Where'd you go to grade school? I went to Westbrook Elementary, that is now something else, and then I went to Westbrook Junior High. That I I heard that they may be putting the junior high back. I, I'm not really sure what's going on with that because I don't live in that neighborhood anymore. Neither does my mom, but I, I had, I had a really great foundation there. So did you start doing theater when you were, when you were in grade school and middle school? I did. I had a kindergarten teacher who noticed that I had really good pitch and I learned the music and I learned the rhythms really well. And that was at a time when they you know, they clapped rhythms and you repeated things and you learned, you learned notes. It was actually not just singing. He was, he was teaching us how to read music. And he noticed that I kind of had a thing for that. And he was music directing something at Westside at the time and said, Hey, why don't you come here and sing this for me and see what you think? And I was like, okay. So I did it. And he was like, yeah, I think you should do this show with me. I'm gonna call your mom. Is that okay? And it's like, yeah, we should do that. Little did he know that I had seen funny girl the year before or so I was, I was like three or four and you know, all I saw was, look what you can do on a stage. That is so cool. I want to do that. And so I also read early. So I found audition notices in the paper when I was four. And I would tell my mom, look, they're having auditions for these things. And she's like, they don't want a four-year-old. You're not going to audition for that. 
I'm sure I was a charming child. <laughs> How many productions did you do when you were in grade school? I mean, I'm assuming, uh, did they have a lot of like productions for like classrooms specifically or were they actual productions for the entire school? In grade school, we did do, we did do little, th- little things in school. I remember just in our class when I was eight, seven or eight or so, I persuaded my mom to let me audition for Cinderella at the Playhouse. And I got into the children's chorus for that. And I don't know, she, she could, she said she couldn't even watch me audition, but I loved it. And I liked, I liked being in the show and I liked being on stage and I enjoyed the other kids. And there were several, several people that I met at that time that I still, you know, I still know, I still run into every so often, but it was a good experience. And then did you go to Westside? I did. You did. And I'm assuming you performed in the plays and musicals at Westside. There used to be a District 66 used to do like a, a summer musical. And I did those like in junior high and high school. I didn't really, I did choir in high school, but I didn't really do much theater. I had a weird experience with my first play there and it kind of put me off and you know, that was a good learning step too, because now as a director, I remember that and I, I don't do that to other actors. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to be nosy. Can you, <laughs> can you expand on, on that experience? Well, we, we were doing our town and I was Mrs. Soames, who I now understand was comic relief. She's, she's funny, but we didn't rehearse it funny and nobody ever laughed in rehearsal. So opening night, when I said my lines, they got huge laughs, but I was not in on the joke. And, you know, tender teenage heart, I was embarrassed and I thought they were laughing at me, not with me. And I really didn't understand what was going on. And I, I could not get off that stage fast enough. And I didn't want to do the show anymore. And the director, nobody said... That's the reaction that you're supposed to get. Afterwards, when I didn't come out for curtain call because I was too embarrassed, he came back and he was like, what happened? Are you okay?" And I was like, they laughed at me. How I I don't even know what to do with that. I'm so embarrassed. And they were like, he was like, no, she's funny. And it's like, really? Because I we didn't nobody laughed in rehearsal and I wasn't doing something that I felt was funny. You know, I wasn't playing for laughs. And Which is why people laughed. Exactly. And I understand <laughs> that now. Sure. However, when you're working with students, especially, I think it's important that they be in on the joke. Oh. <laughs> I, de- I definitely, I definitely agree. When I was in college, it was like the exact opposite experience for me in a show where I knew the character was funny and I was playing for the laughs and I wasn't getting the laughs because... I was the only one in on the joke, yeah, right? Yeah. I thought I was pretty funny. Right. And when I wasn't getting the laughs, I got pissed. <laughs> and you go uh, bigger. No, no. I just, I shut down. Oh. So I just, I'm like, well, they don't think I'm funny. So I started doing everything deadpan. Then, then, the, laughs, the, laughs. then <laughs> I got the laughs and it was like, are you kidding me? And the director said, you know, this is, yeah, this is comedy. So that was in rehearsals and we get to performance and everybody's laughing. So one night, you know, I think I'm all that in a bag of chips (laughs) and I play it up crickets. And then I, and then 
It clicked. It clicked. Oh, wow. You know, and then the director came up and said, have we learned our lesson yet? And I went, yep. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, going back to your story. Yeah. Somebody should have let you in on it. Yeah. I really felt so. Yeah. I really felt that way. And I was really hurt. I was really hurt. And actually a bunch of my castmates were like, we don't understand what happened either. You know, so they obviously just thought we were doing everything very seriously as well. Right. And it was, you know, an interesting lesson in learning how to read a script. And it was an interesting lesson in reading an audience, what an audience might do and thinking about what an audience might do. And then all of the different paths that can lead you that can lead you down. I don't think that I had really ever considered that so much before. I was mostly, you know, ensemble piece or small parts in musicals. And those don't have a whole lot of options. You, you're part of the chorus. You do the chorus thing. And that was, I was great. I was great. That was a great thing for me. I was completely comfortable with that. I liked the camaraderie of an ensemble and I still do. But it was, yeah, it was a really big lesson for me about letting people in on the joke who are leading the joke. Well, and thankfully it wasn't a situation where that discouraged you from ever doing it again. It's because true. It, could, it could have. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What year did you graduate from Westside? Oh, are you going to make me tell that? I, I am, <laughs> as I ask everybody else. Oh, for gosh sakes. I graduated in 87. Oh, so there you go. I graduated in 83. Where did you go to college? I went to Midland Lutheran College, okay. which is now Midland University. I mean, I should have known that because I read in your bio, but I have to ask one stupid question per podcast and that hey, was it. That's all right. Did you go there for music? Did you go there for theater? Did you go there for something else? Originally, I was going to do performing arts major. And right before my scholarship auditions, another bad theater experience. And I decided that maybe I wasn't cut out for this. I'd had two pretty crappy experiences in a row. And even though that was kind of one of the only things I really thought I wanted to do, there was also writing. I was on the newspaper at Westside and there's also visual art. And I've I've always, I've been like majoring since I was three. I have always done art. I've always done music. I've always done some kind of dramatic something. I was, even if it was just being a drama queen as a kid. And so I, and what I say, art, music, writing, theater, those are my things. And I still do all of those things. And sometimes I combine them all at once, but I, I decided that I would try to make my own path with that. And Midland was really great in letting me create my own majors. And not have like I had I had three majors, but I didn't have to fulfill requirements requirements for each one separately. UNL, where I had a really great scholarship, that's what they wanted me to do. Well, you can you can do art and you can do theater and you can do music, but you have to do you have to do requirements for three separate colleges. And if you're going to throw journalism in there, there's a fourth one and you may never get to write for the paper. So I ended up at Midland because they said you can do all of those things and you only have one set of base requirements, but you should follow all of those. And if you end up combining those or dropping one or something, no penalties, it's all fine. And so they were great in their flexibility and I, I loved it. I got such a great education there. I'm, I'm so grateful for the education that I received there. They, you know, I had a column in the newspaper after I wrote my first article that I got to have for like four years. And I got to speak at national conventions and I had a comic strip, Muffy Midland, because <laughs> it was the preppy days. It was funny. I can't say the administration loved me much, but <laughs> <laughs> they never do. No, no. Uh, we ran into the president of uh, the college 
I suppose it was Dan and I were married. I don't know. Maybe we were married five years or something like that. It was some um, journalism function, but he saw me and still the neck started getting red <laughs> and working up his face. And he's Dan was like, okay, you weren't kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we'll pause for a moment in the career. How did you meet Dan? We met through theater friends. Actually, I went to college with, with one of this couple and he, I don't think they went to school together, but they had mutual friends and they ran, ran around a lot together. We met all on the same show. They met on the same show. He was periphery to the show because he was on the board of the Omaha Workshop Theater who was producing it. And I know there, uh, she, had, she had a birthday party for him. Connie had a birthday party for Kyle and I was at the party and Dan was at the party. And I don't know, I, I had just had like the bazillionth breakup <laughs> with somebody coming out of the closet while we were dating. And um, so I was pretty sure I was just done with that. <laughs> not going to do that anymore. And then the door opened and the air changed. And I was like, oh, my God, he's here. And my friend that I was with was like, who? And it's like the man I'm going to marry. And he walked in and there he was. So he was kind of, you know, he didn't really have a chance. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you guys been married? Um, it'll be 28 years in May. So we've been together for 31 years. 31 years. Congratulations. We're so young for that. You are. <laughs> so you graduate from Midlands. Yep. And then what was the next step on your journey? Well, I was supposed to move to Boston and I had a graphics job line, lined up, pretty much lined up, except for the final interview. I had a roommate and an apartment and my grandfather got sick and I had lived with my grandparents while I went to school and I was the one with the most flexible job and my grandmother didn't drive and we just, I just, it just wasn't right to go. So I stuck around and tried to help out and and it, it was it was the right thing to do because then I met Dan. So it would all worked out in the end. You still wonder what would have happened. But sure, sure. You have siblings. I have two siblings, two sisters, two sisters. Are they both still here in Omaha? They are. Any of them have any aspirations for theater or arts or music like you? My my middle sister does hair. So she is very creative and she she paints and she's she's done visual art before. But she, I don't know if she does it so much anymore. I mean, you have kids and your life shifts and, you know, my younger sister still enjoys theater. She was never so much. Well, I guess they all, we all danced. My middle sister did gymnastics. My youngest sister also danced like we all did through high school, I think. And I don't know that she ever so much wanted to be on stage. I seem to remember my middle sister being in a, like a, I think it was called the Can Do Kids. Used to be a kids performing group and they did like nursing homes and um, like September Fest and stuff like that, that kind of stuff. As, as I remember, I don't think my younger sister was in any of those things, but she's also a visual artist and she's got creative kids. One of her, one of her kids is very into theater um, and performing and she's in show choirs and stuff at Westside. The other two are athletic. <laughs> you stayed in Omaha to take care of your grandfather. When did you start breaking into the Omaha theater scene? Dan and I did a show called Night of the Living Bread with the <laughs> Omaha Workshop Theater. It's such it's such a funny show. It's it's um it was originally written for Minneapolis St. Paul, but it so it worked really well for Omaha Council Bluffs. I'm going to interrupt you for a moment. The Omaha Workshop Theater is no longer here. So, no. can you talk a little bit about that and your involvement with that and how it began and I did some PR for the Omaha Workshop Theater and that was a group 
I believe it was a group of playwrights similar to Shelter Belt that came together to do to do their plays. And so they did a lot of original work, but they also did they did Torch Song Trilogy. And I think they did a couple of of other published shows. But this was, you know, a long time ago. So those were a lot newer then. Did they have um, a did they have an actual space? No, nomadic. They were around. They were around actually for a long time. Dan was on the board um, when I met him. They did. I can't remember the timeline for when they did Torch Song and we did Night of the Living Bread. But the the director of both of those shows was the person that Dan knew, the, our, the mutual friend with the guy I went to college with. So that was how we met. So you did shows with the Omaha Workshop Theater? I did. And I'm, t- I'm trying to remember when that was. That was the first show we did together and we were still dating. 89 maybe? Might have been 89. And then what else, what else were you involved in besides Omaha Workshop Theater? What was the next thing? I think the next thing after that was Assassins. At Chanticleer. At Chanticleer. So that would have been, I think it was 91. I think that was the, I seem to recall that that was the landmark show where I used my married name the first time. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And then what did you do after that? What did I do after that? So we would have met, well, we... We met opera. The, I did the yeah, opera. Yeah. We met in the early nineties at Opera Omaha because I, I graduated uh, from Lincoln in uh, December of 91 and then started with, started with the opera that following spring. So yeah, so that was about 92 and I don't remember, but we did a number of, we did a, you guys had done the opera before I started. I mean, that's where I met you, Dan, but I know you had done the opera before then. Yeah. Dan did the opera for about 18 or 19 years. Um, he started when he was in college and I had always wanted to do opera chorus at some point. I'd want to, I love, I love opera and I always thought that would be a really grand thing to be a part of. And it was, so I, I did do, I did the opera chorus for oh, several seasons until they started to not want to pay the chorus very much. And then it was like, well, this is a lot of time in memorizing to not get paid. So little did I know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you had your stint with Opera Omaha. And then did you start breaking out besides Chanticleer to doing shows other places? I, I delved into playwriting and wrote a few monologues for some monologue shows that the workshop theater was working on. I did a publicity for theaters. Gosh, what else did I do? I didn't audition for stuff very often. I'm not much of a type and I knew that and I could tell how things got cast and it was like, well, okay, I'll, I'll figure out other ways to do things. And I, I did, I did some music stuff and I kind of missed that because I don't have time to do it much anymore. And the opera course was really great for filling that void for me. And the opera course at that time also did some choral concerts and we got to sing with the symphony for some really great programs. And yeah, I, I, it was a while before I auditioned for stuff. I'm trying to think the next things that I remember were at the Dundee dinner theater. When did you transition to be more of a director? This was in the early days of snap for us. I mean, we were in, they'd been around doing fundraiser shows, like maybe one a year or something that they were doing. And we joined the steering committee at that time. It was before we were aboard. And I had been, I don't know if you remember the early days of AOL. There were, there was a theater chat group 
And I met some really great people through that. A number of them were playwrights. And I was like, oh, I want to read your stuff. Send it to me. And so they would send me stuff. And I really loved their plays. And we were trying to do the first Snap Fest. Was that the first thing I directed? Gosh, I can't remember if that had to be. No, Whoop-dee-doo had to come before that. It was a big musical. I think it had to be Whoop-dee-doo. That was my first directing gig. And actually that was directed with Todd Brooks. We co-directed it because neither neither of us had done it before. And we thought we could catch each other. And then we ended up, Todd ended up being in the show. And then I ended up being in the show. But they were isolated numbers. So we could watch each other through those. And that was a great learning experience. We got some national sponsors for costumes. And then donated a bunch of stuff that we had left over that that were regular clothes to like shelters and stuff like that. And other costumes were made by local costumers. We had each costumer do a number, costume one of the numbers. So it was it was a fun show. It was a good learning experience. It was it's a big show. (laughs) And then I think through the AOL chat room, I'd met some playwrights and I'd been I'd been hoarding their plays and we were doing the first snap fest. And I thought that I could do an evening of the one act from two playwrights that we combined into one evening. And I directed that. And I had a lot of encouragement from those two playwrights when we were talking about their scripts and the questions that I was asking. And one of them said, you know, you're really a director. And I was like, really? Because I don't think I'm a director. No, I think you're really a director and you really ought to do this. And if you want to suggest this to them, we want you to direct it. And I was like, okay. But I, and I did. And then we ended up doing that evening. And then I was scared to death because I'd said I would direct it. And I really liked these people. And then we flew them in to see the show. And then I was really nervous. But they, they loved it. And they have entrusted me. Um, one of the playwrights, Linda Eisenstein, has entrusted me with a number of her plays. At one point, I was the person who directed the most of her plays. And so she's, she's kind of fantastic. And she was a really early, a real early champion for me. And I really appreciated that because I don't know that I would have gone that direction. And not only did you serve on the board of SNAP, but you were the president of SNAP for a number of years. Is that correct? Yes, I did. Um, Until we had some deaths in close family, in close proximity. And there was so much stuff to deal with that having a theater. I actually took over SNAP when I was the president of TAG. And that was a lot at once. And then we had the family illnesses subsequent losses and we just had to get out and and deal with family and I think we were also moving I, I the year we moved into that we moved snap in with shelter belt we were also moving into our house in Dundee and so we had renovating two houses and a theater and boards and it was it was that was, it was a lot it was a lot that would hit the stress meter. It did. Yeah. Pretty hard. How long were you president of SNAP? It was like three or four years. Okay. So you had some illnesses, you had some personal issues that you had to deal with. So I'm assuming during that time, you probably didn't do a lot of theater or did you? I mostly, I had done some theater in there because we were doing stuff for Night of a Thousand Stars. Michelle Phillips and I, directed by Todd Brooks, did parallel lives. And we had, we'd done it for a fundraiser and then we expanded it for a run at the J, which is where Snap was working out at the time. And did I do anything else during that time? Anything Goes might've been in there too at Chanticleer. 
So I did a few things, but. How many shows have you directed? Oh, I don't even know. I've never counted it. More than 35? Possibly. What have been your favorite shows that you've liked to direct? That you have directed, I should say. Favorite shows. A Perfect Ganesh, a Terrence McNally script that was Snap um, while we were renting at the Dundee Dinner Theater. And it was Lois Nemec and Barb Ross and Ron Osborne and Ben Burkholtz. And what is that show about? It's about two women who go on a soul-searching trip to India and all of the things that they encounter as they're dealing with their own baggage. Other favorite shows? I loved our production of the Vagina Monologues with, that was Little Apple Productions. I, I loved doing... That was done at Stages, right? That was at Stages. And we had the seating tongue. <laughs> The pillow pit on the tongue, which yep. is, it was so funny. They're all kind of my favorites. Most recently, Fun Home. I just went out with the cast last night because we can't stay away from each other. I enjoyed Catherland. That was a really beautiful process and interesting to work with the composer as well as the playwright. And and Catherland was done at the Shelter Belt. That was a Shelter Belt production, yeah. Let's take a moment to talk about the importance of the Shelter Belt Theater in Omaha, Nebraska. Without a place to incubate new plays, there will be no new plays. And Shelter Belt is the only theater in Omaha, and I believe in a good chunk of the region, that specializes specifically in that. We right. will do other, early productions. Other theaters, Blue Barn. Sure. And, and the Playhouse have done new works. Absolutely. Uh, uh, you know, but Shutterbelt's mission is to champion new works. New works. Been in existence for 25 years. Mm-hmm. Currently nomadic. Yeah. I mean, currently have no home. Yeah, no home. Right. So, and I interrupted you. So okay. please go ahead and continue with the importance of, you said regionally, the only theater that you are aware of that specifically only does new work. Correct. And so we do plays that are unpublished. We do plays that it may be more of a, of a developmental or workshop process, even though we don't have a specific process that we follow for each show. We've tried since, since I've been on the board and maybe they tried before, we tried to have some sort of game plan that could apply to each script that we do. And it just really hasn't worked out. It's for us. It hasn't been something that's been easy to make a protocol for the control freak in me would really like it if we had a protocol for everything. (laughs) And And what what do you mean by a protocol for everything? Are you talking about a workshop process, a workshop process? Okay. Yeah. So how do you workshop a play now? Well, it's, it's sort of up to the director and the playwright and the script. Okay. And we always serve the playwright. We're always serving the playwright. And, and also sometimes we're educating the playwright because for instance, and I'm only going to speak for me here because I can't speak for anybody else's process. Sometimes I know what's going to sell and what's not. And sometimes a playwright has a completely different point of view from that. And I think it's educational to know your market for anything that you do in the arts. You have to know your market. You have to know your audience and you have to know what's going to draw them in because otherwise, why are we doing it? And, you know, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of trust in the process for me, 
but it really just depends on, it depends on the playwright and it depends on the script. And I always offer, these are my opinions. You can do what you need to do, but this is, this is my thought on it. And I don't argue about it because I didn't write it. You know, there are places in the blocking where things aren't specified or they, uh, the playwright had a very different view of what our set might look like. And I'll bring them in and say, this is what we're doing because this is what the set is. How would you adjust or how would you have us adjust or what are your thoughts? And, you know, I've been really lucky to work with great playwrights who have been so trusting of me with their, with their play. It's, it's a big responsibility and I take it very seriously. You've had a number of playwrights from here in Omaha. Obviously that's kind of what you focus on. Right. As far as playwriting. Ellen Struve, who's on your board, is a phenomenal playwright. Yes. Laura Campbell's work has been done. Marie Amther Shoot has had work done there. Yes. And Joe Bosky, myself. Do you tend to only take, well, Catherine Land, though, was done by someone out of Lincoln. Uh, yeah, the, the writing duo is out of Lincoln. David Von Campen and um, Becky Bozum is a mm-hmm. playwright. Have you had any other scripts from outside of the Omaha area that you've produced? Thank you for being a friend. The unauthorized Golden Girls musical was from somebody who, I, I think they're from around Nebraska City area. And now they live elsewhere. Nick, the playwright, is in New York, but he's back visiting family quite often. So he was able to come see our production. And that was, that was fun. That was a very fun show. That's another fave. Do you have, a, <clears throat> I'm assuming you have a lot of submissions that come into the shelter belt or we, not? No, we do. We, for a long time, I heard <laughs> there were gobs of submissions, largely from people from New York who just wanted a production because you can't get one in New York. And they weren't always great scripts and they mostly weren't applicable to us. So when, when I joined the board and we redid the website, basically, we all decided that we should have some parameters and you could submit if you were from a, a states that touch Nebraska. And if you were, if you're from Nebraska or Iowa or attended a school in Nebraska, you could submit a whole script. Other places could submit a, a synopsis and like first 20 pages or something. And we would, we'd get back to you. And so that kind of cut down on the reading, but I know Beth reads, she reads a lot of scripts. We haven't been as active in soliciting them at this point because we had started a season, putting a season together when our building sold. And it's, it's, you know, when we, when everything's so up in the air, we don't even know what kinds of scripts we're going to be able to do because we don't know where we're going to land. And so we felt that it was better to pull back and try and focus our efforts and that's what we've been trying to do. I know you've probably been asked this question. <laughs> I know for being on the Snap side of things, because Snap was your sister theater. Still is. We, uh, we get this question ourselves. So where are we in the process of finding a new space or how is Shelter Belt keeping their name out there? Can you give us an update? Well, as far as looking for a building, the search continues. I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic, but I understand that our needs under current city codes are great. So what I've been trying to put out into the universe is that we need a building that either has sufficient ADA bathrooms, access, 
and 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 all of those requirements, which are understandably necessary, but also expensive or a sprinkler system, which is also necessary, but expensive. So if we had one of those things already in a space, that would be easier for us to to take on a space. A lot of the places that we've looked at that seemed viable were so large that although we could use the space, we could definitely use the space up. The codes made it prohibitive. And we, I, we just continue to look. The challenge recently has been we would even do a one night thing. We haven't found any place we could do a run that I felt was going to be cost effective. It's hard when you're saving to move into a place to put out money that you're not going to make back or that you're and, and new work is always a, it's always a risk. It's not a rerun. People don't know what they're getting for, into. So they are, you know, conservative in what they what they spend on a ticket. And if we do someplace that charges us 400 bucks a night, that's really hard to make up, you know. Do you find, do you have problems with getting people to come to auditions for your shows because the plays are not well known? They don't know what the script is. They don't know what they're getting into. Historically, I can't speak for that. I personally have not had problems with auditions or casting. Um, and also, you know, and, and I'm just I'm getting ready in May to teach audition boot camp at the Playhouse. So I've been thinking a lot about what people need to know for auditions. And one of those things is to we'll give people a script. I'll send people the audition sides. I don't care if it's a cold read. I'd rather see what people can do. So, you know, it never hurts to ask. And I, I really don't know any of the playwrights that would have said, no, you can't send my script out. <laughs> No, please get me the actors, <laughs> you know? Right. Okay. I'll give you time to give a pitch to, as to why the Shelter Belt Theater should not close up for good. I think people are beginning to understand what's missing in Omaha without, without Snap and Shelter Belt, both. Because I think that we're kind of a combined double whammy of niche markets. And I think... As I run into patrons who have supported us um, in the years since I've been on the board, they're really missing the new stories. They're, I mean, the, a Shelter Belt audience member is a risk taker. And they're somebody who is excited about a new story. They're excited to be one of the first people to get to see a show. They like bragging rights about that. I, now that show's in New York somewhere, but I saw it at Shelter Belt and... You know, and I was there when it happened and they love that. And I love that about them. It doesn't mean that there isn't a place for, you know, theater that's more established. But I think, like I said before, without new plays, there aren't any new plays. There's nothing. There's no new frontier. So I, I think that Shelter Belt rides that wave at the beginning of new and offers that incubator to take their play elsewhere in the world, which also takes Shelter Belt out into the world. So I think it's a win-win. And I, I, really, I really hope that somebody somewhere has a building for us. So let's turn a little bit to Return to Naya Brera. And even the play that you had before that, that was also Mary Catherine Nagel, Chief Standing Bear. Mary Catherine and I worked together for about 10 years telling Chief Standing Bear's story. The first one was for the federal court house. 
on the anniversary of the trial. So we performed sort of a reenactment, a little bit of dramatization around the how, how we got to the trial. So she wrote the script. She wrote the script. It's, it's a funny story how we began. So she's working at the federal courthouse. Jennifer Gilg is a federal attorney. Two judges that Mary Catherine was clerking for asked her to do a display about some historical thing that happened through a case that had been tried in this court. And she was looking through the library and the librarian pulls up Chief Standing Bear versus General Crook. And she's intrigued because she's never heard of it. And she grew up in Oklahoma. There are Ponca down there. There's Chandy Bear statues down there. And she's like, nobody ever talked about him. So she reads this thing and she's like, oh, this is like the first civil rights case. This is kind of a big deal. And her playwright mind, even though she was she was more of an actor at the time, she had written plays in law school because she was in New Orleans at the time of Katrina. And so she wrote something for the law school to do as a fundraiser. And so she'd written a couple of things. And so her play, her mind went to play. We should do a play about this and we should do it in the courtroom. And the two judges were like, well, okay, we'll see what we can do about that. And um, there was a lot of clearance that had to be had for that. But they, Judge Smith Camp and Judge Battalion were so gracious in supporting that project that we, we did get to do the reenactment of the trial with some, a little filler around it about the rest of the, how that happened in, in the courtroom where it would have happened historically, even though it's the courthouse building is different. But she had called me. She found this, found this thing. She, the judges said, oh, Jennifer Gill does theater. You should talk to her. And Jennifer said, you need to call rocks. <laughs> so she calls me. I was on vacation in Vegas with a friend and she's like, so this is my idea. Jennifer said to call you. I, 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 I want to do a play instead of, of the display in the lobby. And we're going to do it in a federal courtroom and we're getting the permission to do that. And Jennifer said to call you. <laughs> OK, do you have a script? I don't. Do you have a budget? I don't. Is there money for a budget? I don't know. Um, yeah, OK, I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> and then we did that play went on to become Wahe's Law that I didn't travel with it, but it went to the National Museum of the American Indian in the Smithsonian in D.C. and also the museum. And then the Douglas County Historical Society asked her to write some other stories. And so she did one about how Bright Eyes was involved in that case, but it centered on how um, Bright Eyes involvement. And then she wrote one about General Crook and those were both done. Chief Standing Bear Day, it's like May 12th, around May 12th. And so we did, we did those, those staged readings. And then Matt Gutchick at the Rose had read one of those plays and thought, you know, they have a, a deal where they like to tell Nebraska stories in their season and they try and commission a piece, I think every other year. And so he commissioned this one and I was very lucky to get to direct it. So what is the story of Return to Niobrara? Return to Niobrara is two, is actually two stories in one. It's the Chief Standing Bear story and how he ended up being in the first civil rights case in the United States in 1879. I've, I've lost my dates. I had all the dates for a while there. I was really good with everything. And then also the modern story of Stephen, who is a middle schooler in Ponca City, who's being bullied because of his long hair. And being Native American, they had sort of given him a ride on the school policy with hair length. And then when the principal finds out that he's being bullied because of his hair, he's like, well, you're going to have to cut your hair. Or you can't come back. 
So it's how those two stories and their two trials intertwine. You were able to have some Native Americans uh, from the Ponca. Who came to see the show, yes. And then what were the ethnicities of your actors who were actually in the show? Tribal affiliations were Yaki, Prairie Band Potawatomi. One is one is originally from California. One, I guess I don't know where Allison is actually from originally, but she lives in L.A. now. So they but they're not, all different. They're not Ponca. They're not. OK, but they're yeah. not from Nebraska. No, these were professional actors that were brought in to play the role and all all Native American. Two of them are are quite active in Native American rights and tribal sovereignty. Uh, Mary Catherine, of course, is an attorney who works for Pipes Demon Law, which is a major player in the in Native law, which is so complicated. And right now she's fighting to get um, VAWA reinstated, the Violence Against Women Act. The night that I saw Return to Niobrara, there are a number of it was an evening performance. There were a number of kids in the audience. They were spellbound. Yeah. Right. Every every time it was quiet, quiet, not a kid moved. Not a kid uttered a sound. They were totally spellbound by the story, captivated by the actors. Some of it, of course, is going to be the spectacle of the show. Uh, The lighting was beautiful. The music on stage was haunting. Uh, it, It just all came together so well. But the story, they were, you know, this, these are impressionable ages. And so to know that you are hopefully providing a foundation so that discrimination among all cultures, uh, but, you know, but especially the Native American culture has shown a light on that and that will hopefully ripple out. Yes. Yeah, definitely. It was, it was amazing to sit in a theater with, you know, 800 school kids and hear this hush that just happened. And occasionally something some an actor would have a line and somebody would just react like that's not right you're right it isn't that isn't right but my favorite experience with that was i actually had two favorite experiences i love the q a that the rose does and i loved that we would have like 100 people that would stay to listen to it or ask questions adults and kids it wasn't just like all the kids came forward and the adults hung back everybody wanted to be in the front row everybody had questions that was exciting and, and the other thing was one night, Dan and I had gone to see a performance. There was a kid in front of us, maybe, maybe four, maybe a little over, maybe three and a half, something like that. And they were back and forth be, over a sibling to mom and dad before the show started. And I thought, oh, this is going to be fun. And as soon as the show started, that kid sat down on dad's lap and was watching. And at one point turned to dad and was like, they're not going to make him cut his hair. They shouldn't make him cut his hair. And I was like, okay, even at four, the kid gets it. Even at four, the kid gets it. He can learn about the history later. And the Rose had amazing supportive materials for, for schools and for the families to explore the story further. And um, we had assembled a really, I did a really detailed timeline with one of our Ponca consultants that really traced the origins of the Ponca tribe through Standing Bear, post-Standing Bear, tribal dissolution, tribal reinstatement, and where they are now. And so we had that available to people so they could see that this is just a snapshot of what, of what happened. There's so much more. I talked a lot about treaties, which is a whole 
whole other picture of margaritas. And it w- it was so interesting to see families learning together, kids who really got it, really got the message that we should be able to be who we are. If it's not hurting anybody else, we can live and let live. And it doesn't hurt anybody. It's fine. And also to see people learning local history. Standing Bear isn't necessarily taught in in schools. I know that one of the reviews had said that the middle school teacher said he didn't really know much about Standing Bear, had barely heard of him, didn't know that he was the big statue at the ConocoPhillips refinery and and thought that that was implausible, except that Mary Catherine went to school in Ponca City and she never knew who he was. So there's that aspect where it's not really taught as local history and should be. I know that the Nebraska Commission on Indian Affairs sponsors Chief Standing Bear Day and they have essay contests. And I think that that's about the extent of it. People know that there's Standing Bear Lake. People know there's a school named Standing Bear. And actually the teacher came up from Standing Bear's class, one of the classes at the Standing Bear Elementary, came up to me after the show, tears streaming down her face, wanting to know if, if a video was available. Because she said, I try and tell this story every year to people so they know whose school we're at and what we're representing. And she said, this just told it so much better. So it was, that was, that was really rewarding. It was really rewarding. It was an amazing experience to see kids accepting the history here, but also wanting to do something about it, which is another thing with the play is that Steve and the middle schooler decides to engage in a lawsuit against the school in order to keep his hair long. And they, had some really great, again, supporting materials from the Rose that actually gave them some guidelines about how to engage, how to how to engage in standing up for yourself or a, a principal. And I, I think that that's a really great lesson in this troubled, troubled world for kids to feel empowered to act upon what they think is right. It really speaks to kids. And, you know, you talked about the hush that came over the audience. And that was every show. People on staff at the Rose were like, we have never seen kids be that still and that quiet. And I, I love that. And I'm hoping that some of the direction was a part of that. We really made it so there was not, there were no blackouts. I don't do blackouts anyway, unless I really absolutely have to. But there were no blackouts. Everything moved into each other. We called it, I called it being in the stream. So that you're always swimming one direction or another, but you never stop. And I think that that, you know, kind of helped kids latch into it a little bit more. And also having, you know, middle school protagonist who's telling you what's going on. And he stepped out and talks to the audience. I think that they they loved that. They loved Kenny. (laughs) Can you tell me a little bit about your directing style? Do I have a directing style? (laughs) I think everybody does. Probably. And the reason why I ask is because you had just mentioned I don't like having blackouts. so. You like things to flow. I do. I know a lot of times, and I don't know if maybe this is due to budgetary constraints, but a lot of times you work very minimalist on your sets. Yeah, it's true. Well, and sometimes that happens because often set designers are few and far between Mm -hmm. and I end up designing it. And if I'm going to end up designing it, then I end up building it and I don't build things. I paint things. So I, I, I do, I have had some very minimalist <laughs> sets. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, that is a large reason for that. Sure. Um, but also I think often too, with new work, unless the show is about 
something that's really specific set wise and we really need to see that. I would rather keep the focus on the story and the actors. And I do tend to trim down where I where I can on set for that reason, because I hate for it to overwhelm what's going on. That being said, if I could have a big old set, sometimes that'd be nice. (laughs) Right. So how do you dissect a script as a director? I guess I always look for the universal. I look for the universal truth in it. I look for the thing that everybody can latch on to without a lot of argument. (laughs) The place that comes from a deep truth. And that's the thing that I try to stay in touch with through the whole through the whole process. I like to give my actors guidelines and then see what they can do, because I always think that more brains are better than one. And then I like to go back in and refine it. But I like the actors to be a part of the process. There are always going to be places where I have things where it's like, no, this is how I think it needs to be. Let's try this first. But, you know, those those don't always work out. A lot of times they do, but not always. And I'm always happy to have creative brains working together in in that flow. I love I love that to happen. Fun Home was like that. It's a difficult script and it flows in and out of time and in and out of ages of the main character. And it was really great to say to Angie, say Angie Heim, who played Allison, where do you feel you need to be? Where does Allison need to be for you? And she's, you know, and she would say, I feel like she needs to be here to see this. And let's try that. And, you know, actors have good instincts. You're working with good people. They, they, they know where their character should be. And sometimes I would have like three or four options for it. And I could see an argument for both of them, but why fight that if we can make it natural to the person who's going to be on stage? So I like to be able to work with that. And sometimes we shifted those things and I'm, I'm fine with that too. I just, you know, I like to be locked in by tech week, (laughs) (laughs) but I like, I like everybody to feel, I always say I'm, I'm the mama director. I like everybody to feel nurtured and cared for and safe so that they can try things without fear. They know that we're not going to make fun of anybody. They can contribute to the process without anxiety that I'm going to hold it against them or something. And that they all feel secure in what we're doing so that when we get to tech week and we get into the run of a show, when things inevitably happen, they are secure enough to deal with it. For instance, we had, what was, uh, let me a tenor. Was it Chanticleer? And that was, that might've been my first solo directing gig. I had my stagehand dress as a maid. And so she came on at intermission to reset, make the beds, reset the stage. We had her bring in towels. So it looked like she was, you know, cleaning a room or something like that. People stayed and watched it, which I thought was great. But one day something fell and they could just call the maid who came in with the broom and cleaned it up while they'd finished the scene, you know, but nobody was rattled about it because we'd figured that out during, during tech. Oh, if something happens, we can just call the maid and she'll know. And she'll, she's already dressed. She'll just come out with whatever. So that totally works, you know? So I like everybody to be able to be able to be prepared to be for the inevitable, because <laughs> there's always going to be something. There's always going to be something. And, and, you know, that's, that's worked out for me. I know that there are, are, are directors who have, who like people to be on the edge and, and maybe, maybe that's, I mean, I don't think you're ever more in the moment than when something happens on stage that shouldn't have happened. I don't know that I would want to be on that kind of edge 
the whole time, because I also think that it's fun to be a little more relaxed and have fun with what you're doing. Yeah, I'm the mama bear. I like everybody to be comfortable and secure. And if something's going on, I want to know about it. And even if there are young people in the cast, I want them to have the same say as everybody else. Everybody's included. Everybody's important. I like the people surrounding the, the play to be a part of the process, too. I want them to be important. When I have a cast party, I invite everybody to the cast party. It's not just the cast. So, yeah, I like the team effort. Do you have a bucket list show that you would like to direct? I would like to direct a little night music. We were just talking about that one last night. That was one of my favorite shows that I ever got to be in. I just think the music is glorious. And I think that there's a lot of fun in the script. And I would like to direct that. I, you know, pretty much any of the Sondheim Pantheon, I would be fine with any of those. <laughs> Several of my favorites happen to be on the Playhouse season this year, which is kind of funny. Yeah, but you can only direct one. I'm only directing one. And it's, and, and it's the one that I didn't, I don't, I'm not, I wasn't really familiar with the show very much. I had been tracking it and hoped we would see it on our New York trip. And then I think it wasn't playing when we were there. So I had been tracking it. I knew about it, but I, I hadn't really dug in with it. I, I am now. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a, that's an exciting piece too. What's your favorite color? Red. Ooh, new answer. Usually I get blue or green. Oh no, red. So red. Red. If you could choose to live anywhere else, where would you like to live? I would like to live in Santa Fe, between Santa Fe and Taos. Any particular reason? I, I am so captured by the Southwest. And I love like all the Anasazi ruins and things like that. And I've, I've always, I've always been kind of drawn there. Dan and I've also talked about Kauai would be great. And we've also talked about, I don't want to live in Florida though, but we talked about it would be fun when we retire, like I'm ever going to retire. But when that happens, if we moved to Florida and worked at Disney world (laughs) part-time, I was going to ask how many times have you been to Disney world? We were just talking about that. It's, I think it's about 24. If you could go back in time and meet anyone, who would you like to meet? Andy Warhol. That's a good answer. When he, when he died, I was in, I was in college and I of course was an art major, was one of my majors. And that I, I was able to trace this back that that's when I started wearing all black. I didn't before that, but I really went into mourning for him. And I think because he just said, don't think about what other people think of you, go make art. And I try to do that, although I admit I'm pretty thin skinned, especially for somebody in the arts. But it's I've really always taken that. And then I met somebody who was a neighbor of his and I, I didn't know that at the time. And we were talking about something and he said, you know, I so rarely know meet people that I think should have known my old neighbor. But I think you and Andy Warhol would have gotten along really well. I just like burst into tears. He's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Is this a bad thing? And it's like, no, it's a really good thing. Who is the most famous person that you have met? The one that I talked to the longest was Gregory Hines. We went to L.A. We were actually working on a benefit for a hospital in India with Nina Hagen, the 80s punk queen, the first person to defect from East Germany for artistic reasons. She was she was involved in this thing. And I had a friend, actually one of the playwrights from that first Snapfest who was working for a a publicist there. And her boss said, hey, you know, we've we you can go to the you should take him to this taping. So we went and because their client was one of the kids in the show, 
we, it was a wrap for the season wrap there and we got to go to the wrap party. And so we got to talk to everybody and Gregory Hines comes over and this was when I was the president of snap and she's in PR. So she's like, she's the president of this fabulous theater company in Omaha, Nebraska. And she's like going off and on about this. I I'm not sure who she was talking about, but he was like, Oh cool. And she was like, she was saying, Oh, you know, she, she sings and she's all this stuff. And, and he's like, you sing. He was like, we're doing a benefit like on, on, on Wednesday, let's you and me do something. And I was like, Oh yeah. Right. Or whatever. And he was like, no, I'm serious. Let's do something. How long are you here for? And I was, and of course the night of their benefit was the night of our benefit and I couldn't do it. I'll always be sad about that. He was so kind and he was so generous and genuine. He was just like a regular guy, but he was Gregory Hines. And I really admired him. He's in one of my favorite movies, Cotton Club. And so I, yeah, we talked about that a little bit and he was like, not for me. People remember that one. And it's like, I don't know how they cannot because he was mesmerizing in it. He, it was, he was very cool. And he did a cool thing. You know, they do stuff in between takes. There were these two little boys who were tappers and they were doing a, if you, if you, if you do a little, your little act, you know, then we'll give you an autograph script or something like that. So these two little boys start tapping and Gregory hears the tap, looks up, was up there was like, no, no, you don't need to do that. You come down here and do it under the lights. <laughs> and he's, he's tapping with them. And mom is crying. I'm crying. Anybody who knew what a big deal that was, was crying. <laughs> and he was just like, he was so great to those kids. That's a good lick. Here, do this one. You know, he's teaching them stuff. And he's like working. He's got a scene to do in a minute. It was so cool. It was so cool. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Thank You Five podcast with original theme music by Tim Vallier. For more information about tonight's guest, please visit www.thankyou5pod.com. Be sure to head over to iTunes or Google Play to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And remember that right now, somewhere in the world, a stage manager is saying, five minutes to curtain. Thank you, five. 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 That's the other guy.